This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. What we learned from the defector started, of course, in our initial debriefings in Vienna, and it was a blockbuster. He told us that all the Cuban agents that the CIA had in Cuba had been controlled from the beginning by Cuban intelligence. And he actually gave us a number. He said, we have 38 double agents that we've been running against you. We had been had, we had been beaten, and we were absolutely devastated by it. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. Each week, we feature one former intelligence operative from somewhere around the world describing one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On today's show, for decades, the CIA thought it had penetrated Cuban intelligence with scores of informants and agents in Havana. Until one day, a Cuban officer walked into the American embassy in Vienna and broke the news. The agents were actually double agents. James Olson was the CIA station chief in Vienna at the time. He interrogated the Cuban officer and then took charge of cleaning up the mess. Olson would go on to serve as the CIA's head of counterintelligence. His story begins in 1987 in Vienna, a city that played an intriguing role in the Cold War. Vienna was a real hotbed of espionage for everybody. The Austrians basically turned a blind eye to intelligence activities. You could come in and out of the country without much problem. So it was ideal. It's also where East met West. It was right there on the border with Czechoslovakia and Hungary. People were coming through from both sides. It was one of the real major venues of Cold War espionage. The Russians were using Vienna for meeting American agents, and we were not opposing them sufficiently. They had pretty much free reign on the street, and we decided that we wanted to engage them from a counterintelligence standpoint. So I was sent out to build a counterintelligence program there as chief of station. It's a very lengthy process because you've got to have a lot of resources. You've got to have trained counterintelligence people on your staff. You've got to have surveillance capability. You have to have technical capability. You have to have vehicles. You have to have safe houses. You have to have safe garages. You have to have photographic equipment. It's an expensive proposition, and it takes a lot of time to build that up. When you're undercover in a foreign assignment like that, you are doing, in effect, two jobs. You're doing your cover job in an embassy under diplomatic cover, and as such, you would enjoy diplomatic immunity. You would do your State Department job, but you're also doing your operational job. It's stressful. It's demanding. My wife was in the CIA. I met her there. We had three children with us. They were in school there. And that's a major concern for all of us overseas, is the safety of your children. We were very conscious of that. But we lived like diplomats in accordance with our cover. And then we did our operational duties as we had time to do those. But it was very stimulating, very exciting, 
and we believe very important work. It was a weekend in June of 1987. I was at home with my family when the Marine Guard called from the embassy, and he used the prearranged parole to indicate we had a walk-in. And that was not an uncommon occurrence in Vienna because we had lots of walk-ins. Most of them were worthless. We have to be careful because we don't have any indication of the bona fides of these people. They could be anybody. Some of them are mentally disturbed. Some of them are peddlers. But they all had to be checked out because there was an occasional gold nugget in there. I didn't, frankly, have high expectations as I drove into the embassy. But as I walked in the door, I saw sitting in the waiting area a Latino-looking gentleman, middle-aged. And with him was a girl, and I thought probably his daughter. I walk up to the Marine desk and I say, Corporal, what do we have here? He handed me two Cuban diplomatic passports. I return to the waiting area and I try to interview this visitor, Florentino Aspiaga Lombard, and I did not speak Spanish at the time. He did not speak English. It was very difficult to communicate. The only language we had in common was Russian, and his Russian was very elementary. I had served in Moscow, and my Russian was top-notch, if I may say so. And he was getting frustrated because he knew how important he was, and he wanted to impress me with that. But the language barrier was hard to overcome. Finally, he motions for me to come closer, and he begins to rattle off the name of several undercover CIA officers, names I recognized. And, of course, I realized at that point that this is real. We've got a big one here. He really captured my attention. I called in a Spanish-speaking officer, one of my officers, and we began the debriefing right then and there. It was clear that he was a major defector. Florentino Aspiaga Lombard was the Cuban intelligence chief in Prague, Czechoslovakia. The young lady was his teenage girlfriend. They were on the run. They wanted a new life for themselves in America. My first thought was, of course, can we turn him back? Can we recruit him as an in-place source because he would be even more valuable there? We are trained whenever possible to try to send the defector back to his or her job because on the job and secretly cooperating with us is going to enhance the value of that source long term. And there are going to be inducements. We will pay them very generously if they agree to accept the risk of going back. But it was very clear that he had burned his bridges. That was not an option. He had left with the young lady. That was a scandal. He was absent without leave from his post. And he simply wanted a life in America. So that wasn't ever seriously considered by Aspiaga. I knew the identity of the names that he gave us. They were, in some cases, personal friends. They were all colleagues. And I was aware of the nature of their operational duties. 
I knew, for example, that several of them had served in Havana, out of our intersection there. He was talking about American case officers, we call them, who were serving the United States loyally. But the Cuban DGI on island was tracking them and had identified them as CI officers. Their identity should not have been known to anybody because they were all undercover. They were operating undercover. They took their cover very seriously, and it would have taken an intelligence service to have been able to identify them. So he was using the right words, the right technique to get my attention and to convince us that this is real, this is valuable, and take me seriously and do what I'm asking you to do. My reaction was, he's bona fide. There was no other way that he could have known those names except that he was working against them as a professional intelligence officer. What Aspiaga wanted, above all, was resettlement in the United States. He had this young lady with him, and that, I think, was probably a primary motivation for them to seek a life together in the United States. He also was, I believe, motivated by money. He wanted to have a comfortable lifestyle in the United States, and living in the United States with a healthy input from us would be a lot better than living in Cuba. The first thing I do, of course, is to send an immediate night action cable back to headquarters asking for approval to defect him and asking for preliminary debriefing questions. And I got an answer back very quickly. They knew who he was. They knew he was high-ranking. They knew he was a valuable source. This was a bonanza for us. And so I had full authority very, very quickly to get him on his way to the United States with the young lady. But then we put them up overnight in a safe house for security so they would be out of sight and safe. A safe house is a apartment or home in a foreign city that is rented by what we call a safe housekeeper, and that can be a person of any nationality, but someone who is not going to attract attention from the local intelligence service or foreign intelligence services, who has a reason for being in town, who actually lives in the safe house, but using a series of signals knows when to be absent so that we can use that safe house for operational purposes. The safe house will be stocked with food, with snacks, with liquor, everything that might be useful for a meeting. Also, we have the capability in most of our safe houses to put people up safely overnight or for an extended period if necessary. We knew they were safe there, and then we arranged for onward transportation the next day. How we get them to the United States, we call it getting them out black. That means that they do not exist in any manifests, they do not exist on any ticket stubs. We're pretty good at that. We can get people moved internationally quickly, if necessary, without leaving a trace. What we learned from Asbiaga back in the United States was a blockbuster. He told us that all the Cuban agents that the CIA had in Cuba had been controlled from the beginning by Cuban intelligence. And he actually gave us a number. He said, we have 
38 double agents that we've been running against you. Every Cuban asset, every Cuban agent we thought we had from 1961 to 1987 was a fake, was controlled, was a double agent. Cuban intelligence had completely owned our entire asset inventory on island. It was a humiliating piece of information for us to learn. Before the Bay of Pigs, they had full knowledge of what was happening, the fact that we were training the exiles. They knew what was coming. Castro's intelligence arm had good, good coverage of all the preparation for the Bay of Pigs, so there was no element of surprise whatsoever. What the Cubans did was very sophisticated. It was very professional, very thoughtful. They identified Cubans who had marginal access, who they thought could pull off the role of being a double agent. They trained them, and then they put them in the way of American intelligence officers and, in effect, dangled themselves. The Cubans call it carnada, bait. And so they would drop hints that they were susceptible to making a deal with American intelligence. They, in many cases, would play hard to get to make it look real. And then we would, in due course, recruit them. And then the Cubans, gleefully at the other end, would celebrate that they now had a double agent operation that they could run against us. Sometimes they, in Cuban intelligence, saw that we were cozying up to somebody, maybe a Cuban posted overseas, and clearly had an intelligence interest. That person would report that to Cuban authorities, and the Cubans then would say, okay, let's run it. Let's see how far they will go. And then they control it from that point up through the pitch and the handling later on. It's painful to talk about how we were duped, but I think the cardinal error on our part was over-eagerness. We were so keen on having sources on island penetrations of the Cuban government, intelligence from inside Cuba. We were under a lot of pressure from the White House and elsewhere to have good intelligence on Cuba. And so we were willing to accept anything that moved, basically, as long as it was Cuban. One phenomenon that is important here is, is that there is a bias on the part of a case officer of any intelligence service to have an agent that he or she recruited to be bona fide. We want our agents to be worthwhile. We want them to produce valuable intelligence. A case officer is hungry for recruitments. And so a case officer who recruited one of these worthless Cubans would be very prone to explain away the anomalies, the indicators of control, the weaknesses in the operation, the lack of production, the poor polygraph results. We settled for flawed agents over and over again because we liked the idea that we had agents, that we had recruitments in Cuba. We recruited people like ship captains and pilots and low-level officials in the government and teachers and filmmakers. They had no significant access by the nature of their jobs. What they did to keep us interested was to 
indicate that they were headed toward meaningful access. That's one of the devices that they used against us. They always held out the promise that these people who did not have any real current access and could not produce useful intelligence were on the verge of getting something worthwhile. So they kept us on the hook, and we stayed on the hook for a long, long time. From the beginning, they were passing us feed material that was of no real loss to them and no real value to us, but it was sufficient for us to look the other way and to continue to run them uh, as long as we could. Cuba was particularly, I think, able to dupe us this way because we had such poor reporting on Cuba. We had penetrations of Russia. We had penetrations of other high-level targets. But Cuba was basically closed to us. They were hard to recruit. They were very disciplined. Cuban intelligence officers were carefully selected and monitored. We couldn't get to them. So we settled for lower-level sources just to get something in the hopper in terms of intelligence. Before Aspiaga, I think it's clear that we underestimated Cuban intelligence. I don't think we realized how good they really were. We knew they'd been trained by the KGB, but our assumption was that the KGB would be the pros. They would be the masters. It turned out that the Cubans surpassed their masters in the terms of their tradecraft, their discipline, their sophistication, and their resistance to penetration. They were better than the KGB. I would put the Cubans on a par with the East German Stasi, which was the other really top adversary that we faced during the Cold War. The Cubans just seemed to have a knack for deception, Fidel Castro himself was directly involved. He was pulling the strings. He was a very astute spy master. He also had an intense hatred for the United States. I think he took particular glee in sticking it to us Americans, and he did over and over again. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. I'm Margot Martindale. When we come back, Cuba adds insult to injury with a six-part television series. That in a moment. I kind of inherited the fallout from Aspiaga when I returned to headquarters and took over counterintelligence at one point. We had to clean up the mess, no doubt about it. For one thing, we had to do a much better job of determining the bona fides of our recruitments. We developed a system we called the asset validation system where we subjected our new recruited agents to much tighter scrutiny. We also required that we have an outside, independent, objective look at these recruitments. A problem we'd had in the past was that the area divisions, including the Latin American division, were policing themselves. They did have a strong bias to finding their cases good. They didn't want to take problems to their management. They didn't want the operations to be revealed as malified. 
the intelligence that was produced by the Cuban assets, as low level, as useless as it was, still had to be recalled because we disseminated it. We told the community that we had agents in Cuba and this was the information they were providing. And, you know, we would put the best light we could on it. But all of that had to be recalled after the fact. We had to reveal to all of our consumers of the Cuban intelligence that none of it was bona fide. All of it was feed material. And that was very, very humiliating for the CIA to have to go back all those years and to recall all of that disseminated intelligence. We also had other losses that we had to acknowledge. Our tradecraft in handling these Cubans was now disclosed to the Cubans. The equipment that we gave them, including some very sensitive burst transmitters and satellite communication systems, were all compromised. The money that we paid them, of course, went into the Cuban intelligence coffers. I don't think we have an estimate how much money we paid them, but it really galls me that it was considerable because we were paying top dollar for junk. I believe we probably overpaid our agents because we were so keen on keeping them on board. It was, across the board, one of the worst defeats that I think U.S. intelligence has ever ever suffered. We also know, of course, that everything that the Cubans learned about the CIA's operations and the identity of our officers, some 160, 170 of our officers were identified through these double agent operations, went right to the KGB because the Russian intelligence controlled Cuban intelligence. The officers whose cover was blow, were blown had to take that into account in their future postings, their operational activities. It was very damaging career-wise for those people. They could survive it. They could stay in our service. They could do productive things. But there was some limitation when we knew that their cover was, in fact, blown to the Cubans and to the Russians. Shortly after the defection of Aspiaga, the Cubans had a six-part television expose. It was a brilliant series. Aspiaga defected in June of 1987. This expose was just the next month, in July of 1987. They had filmed our case officers performing operational acts in Havana and elsewhere. That was kind of the highlight of the series to show these bungling CI officers out there servicing dead drops, marking signals, looking conspicuous. It made us look very amateurish. It made us look like the gang can't shoot straight. And of course, the whole tone of the thing was to ridicule these American CI officers who were so easy to deceive, so easy to manipulate. It was very, very hard to watch. And the Cuban public, the international public, gobbled it up because it really discredited the CIA in a way that we weren't used to being discredited before. And we deserved it because we had done a very poor job. When a defector is resettled in the United States, our number one objective is to make that person a productive new citizen, a happy citizen, a new career. That's not always possible. Aspiaga, to my knowledge, never had a real career. 
He kind of remained a Cuban intelligence consultant. He had to lie low, of course, because the Cubans were looking for him. He needed protection. And in fact, there were two assassination attempts against Aspiaga from the Cubans later on. We had to guarantee his security. He had to have a new identity. He had to be provided with all the means of living, documentation in his new home in the United States under a false identity. He lived kind of a quiet life. I don't know a lot of the details. I do know that he he passed away just in October of last year at the age of 71 in the United States. I don't know much about the girlfriend, the lady friend. I assume that they tried to have a successful, happy life together, but she kind of went off our radar. A CI officer undercover lives a complicated, stressful life. It is a double life. And if you have a spouse who is not in the CIA, there are going to be some strains there. It's a commitment that both of you have to be willing to make. Even if your spouse is not in the CIA and chooses not to join the CIA, he or she must agree to live the undercover lifestyle which means living a lie. It means living a life of some risk. It means spending most of your career outside the country. It means being away from family and loved ones, friends back in the United States. That can be difficult for a lot of people. My parents, for the entire time that I was in the CIA, did not know I was in the CIA, so I'm living a lie with my own parents, with my brothers, my sister, all of our friends, our children did not know we were in the CIA. That's stressful. You also live with the specter of getting caught and what that would mean to you and to your family. You also have a heavy responsibility because you are dealing in human lives. These foreign agents that you are handling are risking their lives. If they get caught, they will face the death penalty or life in prison or some other severe penalty. You feel that burden very, very heavily. And if you make a mistake and contribute to their demise, it's something you carry with you the rest of your life. You have very little margin for error. You're always on edge. You're always listening for that knock at the door at night that you don't want to hear. There is a lack of communication even in your own marriage because you can't talk about your own operations unless there's a need to know even from the other the other cleared person in the marriage, it's, it's not easy. Some of our people suffer depression, suffer anxiety, suffer a form in its severest uh, manifestation of post-traumatic stress. Our children, while we were undercover, just thought we were whatever our cover was, and the parents as well. They never really suspected anything. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of terrible to say, but you get good at lying. You get good at living a double life. I love my wife Meredith dearly, and she's a dear person. People look at her as very kind and honest and sympathetic, but she is a really good liar. She could tell you anything and make you believe it. She would not betray any discomfort, any sense of deception. 
I liken living undercover to being a good actor or an actress. The best actors and actresses get so into their roles that that's who they become. My parents and others were shocked when we had to come out from undercover. We were very concerned that they would be hurt. That was a painful conversation, but it's kind of interesting because both sets of parents, Meredith and mine, reacted in exactly the same way. And you know what that was? Thank you for not telling us sooner. They said, when you were in all those foreign countries, we would not have wanted to know you were in the CIA to have to worry about what you were actually doing. We told our children when we were in Vienna, their initial reaction was probably disbelief that their parents could actually be doing anything so cool. We had not wanted to tell them yet because they were still young. Our oldest was only 16 at the time. But when Meredith and I were in Vienna, we were the targets of a death threat from a terrorist organization, a very specific death threat against me by name, against Meredith by name, and against each of our three children by name. So that was the point when we decided that we needed to tell our oldest, our son, who was then 16, that we were in the CIA because we wanted him to help us watch out for his brother and sister, to keep his eyes open. There's a lot to put on a 16-year-old. We also put some additional protections on the children that they weren't aware of, and he did a good job of helping us out. He really did. Leaving the agency was hard. It was the only life that I had known. My best friends were colleagues at the CIA. I had a sense of value, a sense of contribution, a sense of service at the CIA that would be hard to duplicate anywhere else. The trauma arose in knowing that Meredith and I had to come out from undercover. And we realized what the consequences were, the difficult conversations with our family and friends, for starters. But also when you come out from undercover, in effect, you are announcing to the whole world that when you were in their country, you were violating their laws, you were committing espionage. So that meant that our future international travel would be severely limited. I will not be going back to Russia anytime soon, (laughs) you know. I'm not going to Cuba anytime soon either. (laughs) James Olson is the former head of counterintelligence at the CIA. His latest book is To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence. iSpy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron, Rob Sachs and Amy McGinnon helped produce today's show. The interview with Olson was conducted by Dan Efron. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us. I spy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Foreign Policy subscribers can go to our website to hear bonus episodes of iSpy with additional excerpts and interviews. If you're not a subscriber, go to foreignpolicy.com backslash subscribe for access to all of the magazine's great content. 
Next week on the show, CIA agent Amaryllis Fox poses as an art dealer to recruit an arms trader. He was fearful, um, but we had built an immense amount of trust. And I remember him very distinctly saying, will I be safe? What do you want me to do? Do you work for CIA? And that's the moment that you say, yes, I work for CIA. And he said, so are you going to arrest me? And I said, no, we're old friends, Jakob. We can do far better than that. That episode next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale.